everyone, and welcome back to the British Royal Fanatic Podcast. I'm Hayden, your American friend with a passion for British Royal history. We have come to the end of October and our last foray into spooky and scary stories of Royals history's past. We've talked about the ghosts of Hampton Court Palace. We've talked about the Tower of London, about prisoners, torture, ghosts. We've talked and sort of dabbled in a little bit about some true crime and today is no different as we come to an end to October here at the podcast. It's been a lot of fun delving into this side of British history and let me know what you think of it. Do you like some of these spookier, scarier stories? Is this something you'd like to hear more of? Let me know and we will add this more into the regularly scheduled programming, especially as we finish out 2021. We've hinted at today's subject a little bit, especially if you listened to last week's episode where we talked about the Tower of London, and now, because this story is bonkers, it needs a whole episode to it. Today we are talking about the Princes of the Tower, the disappearance of the two princes of the Tower. We are returning to the Tower of London. Let's see how many times I can say Tower. This is a wild story about how these two princes just disappeared. It's been a subject of true crime documentaries, royal documentaries, there's been a lot of media coverage and conspiracy about it, but without further ado, let's just delve right into it and we'll we're going to be discussing the princes of the tower, the young prince Edward heir to the throne and his brother prince Richard the Duke of York. So the princes were the sons of King Edward IV and Queen Elizabeth Woodville, and they were born during the immense turmoil of the War of the Roses. In summary, and in very brief, the War of the Roses happened between 1455 and 1485, and they were a series of civil wars with the two rival branches of the Plantagenet family that were fighting over the throne of England. The House of Lancaster was led by the then King Henry VI, which is symbolized by the Red Rose, and his cousin Edward IV, who was head of the House of York and is symbolized by the White Rose, hence the War of the Roses. In 1461, King Edward IV managed to imprison King Henry VI in the Tower of London, and that was how he was able to take his crown. The new king then married the widowed Elizabeth Woodville in secret, And that was not the most popular choice at court at the time. Many people wanted him to marry a French princess or someone else, or he also had an apparent contract with another woman, but he ended up marrying Elizabeth Woodville, and she was widowed. She had already had children, and by marrying her, her family was then put in a greater position at court, and possibly maybe got some extra favors for it. Conspiracy, conspiracy. But either way, against the court's wishes, he married Elizabeth Woodville. And together, they had two sons, uh, Edward and Richard. And Edward was named Prince of Wales, and Richard was named the Duke of York. They created an heir and a spare. The House of York was solidified. Boom, everything's fantastic. Not only did they create an heir and a spare, but in, again, 1461, with the eventual murder of Henry VI and sort of the end of the House of Lancaster, 
we now it solidified the house of york edward the fourth in his position he had an heir a spare everything was fantastic and everything was great well sadly on april 9th 1483 king edward the fourth died unexpectedly on edward's death he had asked that his brother richard the duke of gloucester later king richard the third be the protector of his sons and make sure they were looked after that did happen but it took a while so the duke of gloucester didn't know about the death of the king right away it took a few days you have to keep in context of the time period where things just weren't uh news didn't travel very fast but he went to where the king was went to where the now the the young king granted he wasn't coronated but still the young king edward edward v went to him said i'll be your protector i'll be your lord protector abc one two three the Duke of Gloucester then rounded up the current advisory board and advisory group for the little king and had them all sent away and executed and beheaded. And so it was just Richard. He had sent them all away, so he only had influence and control over him. Fearing for her children and the safety of everything, Elizabeth Woodville took her daughters and the Duke of York, the little Duke of York, and they went to sanctuary at Westminster Abbey. They sought refuge and safety there. They, She knew that being protected at the Abbey and all the eyes there, every, that her children would be safe, especially little Richard. The new little King Edward V and the Duke of Gloucester made their way down to London and the Duke of Gloucester ended up for safety putting the new little uncoronated king at the Tower of London, but it wasn't for prison. No, he was there for safety. And also at the time, it was tradition for monarchs before their coronation to be at the Tower of London. That was the tradition at, at, at the time to stay in the king's accommodations or whatever, uh, you know, nicer accommodations that weren't <laughs> that weren't prison. <laughs> as we established last week, you know, the tower was used as a prison for a very long period of time. But no, he was there for safety, keeping everything safe, and eventually against better judgment and probably from pressure, Elizabeth Woodville let the Duke of Gloucester take little Prince Richard, the Duke of York, and he joined uh, his older brother at the tower. So at, we now have the princes there. Little King Edward V was only 12 years old and the Duke of York was only nine. So they were very, very tiny, very, very young children. When the young Edward V and the Duke of Gloucester arrived in London, plans went underway immediately for Edward's coronation. Coins were being minted. Everything was in full-blown succession. Everything was great. Dates were being picked. But then all of a sudden things get postponed. And then Edward's coronation gets postponed and possibly canceled indefinitely because issues have come up with the legitimacy of the new king and the heir and the spare. So there's issues with legitimacy. On Sunday, June 22nd, a sermon was preached at St. Paul's Cross claiming that the Duke of Gloucester was the only legitimate heir to the House of York. And on June 25th, a group of lords, knights, and gentlemen petitioned that the Duke of Gloucester take the throne, and this was enough pressure to actually have Parliament be summoned, and they went over the legitimacy and the rights of whether the Duke of Gloucester was the actual king, whether, you know, this little boy was now king, and they found that the little king and his brother were invalid. They were found to not 
actually be able to have claims to the throne. And subsequently, they were deemed illegitimate by Parliament, and it was confirmed in 1484 by an act of Parliament known as, I believe I'm pronouncing this right, the Titulus Regius. And this act stated that the marriage between King Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville was deemed invalid because Edward had already agreed and was in a pre-marriage contract to marry Lady Eleanor Butler. So whether or not the Duke of Gloucester helped with this pressure is sort of up to speculation. But we now have where these two young princes were deemed illegitimate because his their biological father said they were going to marry someone else, but then they married Um, Elizabeth Woodville and because of that they were deemed illegitimate and modern scholars have said it's ex ex post facto jurisdiction after the fact jurisdiction which in some ways is kind of messed up that it happened you know after the fact but this helped the Duke of Gloucester's ascension and the Duke of Gloucester is named the only legitimate heir and he is then coronated and he is then crowned king King Richard III. There was a sort of diplomatic character of sorts by the name of Dominic Mancini. He was an Italian friar who visited England in the 1480s and was in London in the spring and summer of 1483 and recorded that after Edward III seized the throne, the young Edward and his brother Richard were taken, quote, into the inner apartments of the tower and they were progressively seen less and less until they just disappeared. No one had heard or seen them ever again. Mancini's records indicates that this period, the little Prince Edward was visited regularly by a doctor who reported that Edward, quote, like a victim prepared for sacrifice, sought remission of his sins by daily confession and penance because he believed that death was facing him. There are reports that the two princes were seen playing in the tower grounds shortly after Richard joined his brother, but then again they were progressively seen less and less until they were just never seen again. And this was in the summer of 1483. There was an attempt to rescue them in July of 1483, but that failed. That is all that we concretely know for sure, that they were deemed illegitimate, Richard III seized the throne from them, and the two young princes were just progressively seen less and less until they were never seen again. Many historians believe that the princes were murdered. Some have suggested that the act may have happened towards the end of the summer of 1483. Historian Maurice Keane argues that the rebellion against Richard in 1483 was initially aimed to rescue the young princes from the tower, but it was a little too late. They wanted to do it before it was too late, but it ended up the thought process was okay it might be a little bit too late and then when the duke of buckingham joined and really rallied behind the forces it was more about supporting henry tudor than trying to get the young princes out and at that point it was understood that the young princes were dead other than their disappearance there is no direct evidence that can concretely say that the princes were murdered and there's no quote reliable well-informed independent or impartial sources or any associated events therein. At this point, everything is just conjecture because we don't know for sure. Following their disappearance, rumors quickly spread that they had been murdered. Only one contemporary narrative account of the boys' time at the tower exists, and that is of the sort of ambassador sort character, Dominic Mancini. But his account wasn't discovered until 1934 in the Municipal Library of Lille, 
Later accounts were written about the princes were more in support of Henry Tudor and were seen as Tudor propaganda. So we can't necessarily take those as truth. We have to take those sort of tongue in cheek. But the only definitive count from the time period that is remotely accurate and unbiased is that of Mancini. The running story even today among amateurs such as myself is that the princes were murdered. But who did it? Who can we point at? What's the motive? How can we figure out, you know, some? Can, how can we make sense of this? And there are a few theories behind these alleged murders. And there's three people that history has sort of pointed at as possible murderers or people responsible. And again, this is all alleged. The most common theory is that they were murdered close to the time that they disappeared. So shortly after Richard joined Edward, they then disappeared and were possibly murdered. Among historians and authors who accept the theory, the most common explanation and where everything points to is that Richard III was responsible for their death in some way, shape, or form. Although the princes had been eliminated from the succession and any claims to the throne, Richard III's hold on the monarchy was very insecure and precarious due to the way he actually got the crown, leading to a massive backlash against him by the Yorkist establishment. He pissed a lot of people off in doing this, and, you know, the monarchy really wasn't stable when he had it. An attempt had already been made to rescue the princes and restore Edward to the throne, which is clear evidence that the mere existence of the princes would remain a threat as long as they were alive. The boys could be used as collateral by Richard's enemies, they could be used as figureheads for rebellion, and in general, the, them being alive wasn't good for what was happening. Rumors of their death were in circulation by late 1483, but Richard never attempted to prove those rumors wrong by having the boys come out in public. It could have been easy to just have them appear really quickly to help, uh, to squelch all of the rumors, but he didn't do that. He didn't try to prove the rumors wrong by actually showing concrete evidence. The most he did, especially on tours when he would go around, was sort of talk that he was innocent, that he didn't do it, that, you know, the, he didn't, these rumors of murder, he didn't do anything, but he didn't provide evidence to prove the latter wrong, which is big. He didn't try to prove himself because he could have easily done it. One thing to keep in mind is that while the princes were at the tower and then once Richard took the throne from them, Richard was then in charge of the security and the welfare, welfare of the boys. Yes, he was still in some ways their lord protector, but he was in charge of the tower, the guards at the tower. He had apparently kept them in very high security in a very hidden remote part away from the tower and the only way to get to them was through his permission. So he was sort of the big man up top that if anything happened to them, he would have been aware, he would have had to sign off on it, he would have had to have some knowledge about these little princes and their well-being. Now, for context, and actually what we do know for sure, is that Richard was away from court at the time the princes formally disappeared. If they had died at this time, Richard III would have been unable to murder them in person. They were, again, as I had said, under very intense guard at the tower, and he would have known and would have had to grant access to them. 
Therefore, it's very likely that he dispatched and hired someone to do it for him. That was one of the guards. He would have told one of the guards to do it for him and then report back when the deed was done. And therefore, it's unlikely with all this control he had, it's very unlikely that the princess would have been murdered without his knowledge. He would have had to know in some way, shape, or form that the princes were murdered. In this version of events, so him telling a guard to murder and report back, has been put forward by historians Thomas More and Polydor Virgil, and they both named Sir James Tyrell as the murderer. Ty uh, Tyrell was an English knight who fought for the House of York on many occasions. Tyrell was arrested by Henry VII's forces in 1502 for supporting another Yorkist claimant to the throne. Shortly before his execution, Tyrell is said by historian Thomas More to have admitted under torture to having murdered the princes at the order of King Richard III. The only record of this is in the writing of Thomas More, who wrote that during his examination, Tyrell made his confession as to the murders, saying that Richard III had ordered their deaths. He also implicated two other men, but despite further questioning, he was unable to say where the bodies were, claiming that others had moved them. However, the only record of Tyrell's confession is through more and no actual concrete confession like this has ever been found. Whichever way you sway, the fact that Richard had the princes under such control, he was always aware of where they were, and they were such a direct threat at the time to his claims on the throne, that he would have wanted to know where they were, and in some way, shape, or form, regardless of wherever you, you fall in this argument, Richard was in some way responsible, even if he didn't know outright that they had been killed or disappeared or whatever had happened. He was the only one that knew where they were and had control over them. So he would have had to know one way or another what had happened, which is something that just still kind of pings with me that how could you just, they could just disappear and no one can talk about it anymore. The other possible suspect is Henry Stafford, the second Duke of Buckingham. The plausibility of Henry Stafford, the second Duke of Buckingham, who was Richard III's right-hand man, as a suspect depends on the princes having already been dead by the time the Duke of Buckingham was executed in November of 1483. It has been suggested that Buckingham had several potential motives. As a descendant of King Edward III, the Duke of Buckingham may have hoped to ascend to the throne himself in due course, or he could have been acting on a third party. Somebody else could have told him to do it. Some regard Buckingham as the likeliest suspect in this. His execution, after he rebelled against Richard in October of 1483, might signify that he and the king had had some form of falling out. A contemporary Portuguese document suggests Buckingham as the guilty party, stating, quote, After the passing away of King Edward in the year of 83, another one of his brothers, the Duke of Gloucester, had in his power the Prince of Wales and the Duke of York, the young sons of the said king, his brother, and turned them to the Duke of Buckingham under whose custody the said princes were starved to death. A document dated some decades after the disappearance was found in the archives of the College of Arms in London in 1980. It stated that the murder, quote, be the vice of the Duke of Buckingham. This then led historian Michael Bennett to suggest that possibly some Richard's prominent supporters, being that the Duke of Buckingham and guard and knight James Tyrell murdered the princes on their own initiative without waiting for Richard's orders. Bennett noted in support of this theory 
that, quote, after the king's departure, uh, the Duke of Buckingham was in effective command of the capital, and it's known that when the two men met a month later, there was an unholy row between them. So we have another possible motive. So we have Richard III wanting to murder them to squelch any sort of rebellion and figurehead to lay his claim to the throne and them being alive was nothing but a threat to his mere existence on the throne because there was still so much rebellion going on. And then you have the Duke of Buckingham and you know, possibly his accomplice, James J- James Tyrell, murdering them sort of on Duke of Buckingham's own behalf that he wanted to possibly usurp the throne, that he was acting by a third party, or he was possibly acting under Richard III's orders. So there's a lot to go on here, but we still have one more possible suspect, and that is actually Henry VII himself, Henry Tudor. So Henry Tudor, following his seizure of the crown, executed some of his rival claimants to the throne, John of Gloucester, the illegitimate son of King Richard III, is said to have some sources been one of those that has been executed. Henry was out of the country between the prince's disappearance and in August of 1485, thus his only opportunity to murder them would have been after his ascension in 1485. And historian Pollard suggests Henry, or those acting under his orders, quote, is the only plausible alternative to Richard III. The year after he became king, Henry Tudor married the prince's eldest sister, Elizabeth of York, to reinforce his claims to the throne. And not wanting his children or himself be thrown into questions and deemed illegitimate, he had that uh, Titus Regius, that ex post facto jurisdiction repealed and removed before he went ahead and married Elizabeth of York just to be sure that you know to make sure his claim was true and that we wouldn't be questioned it's suggested that if Henry Tudor did it they were executed under Henry's orders between June 16th and July 16th of 1486 claiming that it was only after this date that the orders went out to circulate the story that Richard III had killed the princes and that the prince's mother, Elizabeth Woodville, knew that this story was false and that Henry Tudor was the one responsible, and that's why she was subsequently silenced. So those are the three main suspects when looking objectively at this mystery behind what happened to these three princes. Richard III trying to secure his place on the throne, the Duke of Buckingham trying to usurp his own position on the throne, or Henry Tudor trying to execute them now that he has the throne, he doesn't want anything questioned. So it's all about power here. It's all about power and who has claims to the throne right now. There are a myriad of other suspects being John Howard, the first Duke of Norfolk, Margaret Buford, Henry VII's mother, and Jane Shore, Edward IV's mistress, But a lot of them don't necessarily hold a lot of water in terms of concrete evidence and concrete motive. That's the big thing is motive. Why would we want them killed? Why would we want them to go away? And it all comes down to, you know, people that want the throne. People that want the throne for themselves and to squash rebellions, to keep everybody in control. It all boils down to control and power. The political reality of the disappearance of the princes, whatever happened to them, whether they just disappeared or were murdered or what have you, whatever you believe, 
the most common accepted theory and the most common just accepted in general is that they were murdered and that Richard III is somehow to blame for their murders. Even if he had not been directly responsible for their deaths, the fact that he deposed them and kept them under such tight guard made him responsible for their welfare in the eyes of contemporaries. And the belief that they had been murdered made him guilty by negligence, if not malice. An initial uprising in September 1483 aimed at deposing Richard III and restoring Edward V to the throne was not stopped by rumors of Edward's murder. Instead, the rebels rallied around Henry Tudor as a potential alternative candidate. Historian Anthony Chetnam, who considered Richard likely to have had the princes murdered, commented that it was, quote, a colossal blunder. Nothing else could have prompted the deflated Woodvilles to hitch themselves to Henry Tudor's bandwagon. The fact that the majority of the rebels were wealthy and powerful southern noblemen loyal to Edward IV suggests a degree of revolution against Richard's usurpation to the throne. They were linked to fight under an implausible alternative candidate suggests that they regard anyone else as preferable to Richard as king due to his way of usurping the throne and possibly killing his nephews. It suggested that perhaps those who had initially supported Richard in his seizure of power may have felt complicit in this crime, which he thought, quote, might explain the bitterness of the subsequent recriminations against him. So in some ways, whichever way you believe, it has been generally accepted that Richard is somewhat responsible. And that the general consensus at the time was everybody was angry that he took the throne. People that supported him were now against him because they felt complicit. And okay, we supported this man in his usurpation of the throne. Ooh, these uh, we, these kids got murdered. Ooh, we don't like this. But whichever way you fall, Richard III has been deemed in some way, shape, or form responsible, if not by malice, by negligence. But the mystery doesn't stop there. Believe it or not, dear listener, this the mystery doesn't end there. We're going to fast forward a few centuries, and four unidentified bodies of young children have been found and have been considered possibly connected to these two princes. There were two young skeletons found at the Tower of London and two in St. George's Chapel at Windsor Castle. Those that were found in the tower were buried in Westminster Abbey, but authorities have refused to allow either set of remains to be subject to DNA analysis to possibly identify them as the princes. So two sets of skeletons that the most that they could do in terms of trying to determine who they are have been found at the tower and at Windsor Castle, but no one has permitted to actually do DNA tests or anything further. The skeletons that were found at the Tower of London, they were found in 1674. So workmen were remodeling the Tower of London when they accidentally dug up a wooden box containing two small human skeletons. The bones were found buried 10 feet under a staircase leading to the chapel of the White Tower. They were not the first children's skeletons to be found within the tower. The bones of two children had previously been found in an old chamber that had been walled up, which uh, historians suggest could equally have been those of the princes, but I couldn't find anything else about those other two skeletons found at the, at, at the tower. The reason that these sets of bones have been uh, attributed to the young princes, the location where the bones were found matched sort of contemporary accounts of where the young boys were at the time of their disappearance. 
Moreover, historians also stated that they were moved to a, quote, better place, which does not match with the bones discovered. So the staircase beneath where the bones were found was not built at the time of Richard III. So in the 1400s, late 1400s, the staircase wasn't built. One anonymous report was that they were found, quote, with pieces of velvet and a rag about them. The velvet could indicate that the bodies were those of aristocrats. Four years after their discovery, the bones were placed in an urn, and on the orders of King Charles II, they were interred at Westminster Abbey in the wall of Henry VII Lady Chapel. A monument designed by Christopher Wynne marks the resting place of the Pultative Princes. So fast forward to the 20th century, 1933. The bones were then recovered and examined by the archivist at Westminster Abbey, Lawrence Tanner, and a leading anatomist, Professor William Wright, and the president of the Dental Association at, at the time, George Northcroft. By measuring certain bones and teeth, they concluded the bones belonged to two children at the correct ages of the princes, so 12 and 9. The bones were found to have been interred carelessly along with chicken and other animal bones. There were also three rusty nails found among everything. One's skeleton was larger than the other, but many of the bones were missing, including part of the smaller jawbone and all of the teeth from the larger one. Many of the bones had been broken by the original workman that found them in 1674. The examination has been criticized, though, on the grounds that it concluded on the presumption that the bones were those of the princes and concentrated only on whether the bones showed evidence of suffocation. No attempt has ever been made to determine whether the bones were male and female. And as there hasn't been any other scientific explanation, other scientific experimentation done on the bones, they have remained at Westminster Abbey. There was apparently a petition that went forward a few years ago to get them DNA tested and it got close. It got close to actually getting everything it needed, but it needed a hundred thousand signatures for Parliament to actually trigger a debate and talk about it, but it didn't get that. But historian Pollard points out that even if modern DNA and carbon dating prove that the bones belong to the princes, it would not prove who killed them. So that's the big point that which I'll get to another end is that yes, we can prove if we can that these bones belong to princes, but we can't prove who killed them because we don't have the record of it we just don't know if we find out okay these are the bones cool great awesome but we don't we can't find who killed them the other set of bones that were found at saint george's chapel were found in 1789 so workmen were carrying out repairs to saint george's chapel at windsor castle and they rediscovered and accidentally broke into the vaults of king edward the fourth and queen elizabeth woodville discovering in the process what appeared to be a small adjoining vault this vault was found to contain the coffins of two unidentified children. However, no inspection or examination was carried out, and the tomb was then resealed. The tomb had, the tomb had inscribed the names of two of, of Edward IV's other children, George, the first Duke of Bedford, who died at the age of two, and Mary of York, who had died at the age of 14, which both had died before the king. However, two lead coffins clearly labeled as George Plengent and Mary Plengent were subsequently discovered elsewhere in the chapel during an excavation of the tomb for King George III under um, the Worsley Tomb House from 1810 to 1813. And they were moved into the adjoining vault of Edward IV, but at the time, no effort had been made to identify the bodies in the two lead coffins. In the late 1990s, work was being carried out near and around Edward IV's tomb at St. George's Chapel. The floor area was being excavated to replace an old boiler and other just general repairs in that regard. 
and also they were to add a new repository for the future remains of the deans and canons of Windsor. A request was forwarded to the deans and canons of Windsor to consider a possible examination of the two vaults either by fiber, uh, fiber optic camera or if possible a re-examination of the two unidentified lead coffins in the tomb also housing the lead coffins of the two of Edward IV's children that were discovered during the building of the royal tomb for King George III from 1810 to 1813 that were then placed into the adjoining vault. In order to do this, so in order to go into these vaults and take out those, the, either the two lead coffins and the two other ones that are in the adjoining vault, so to excavate these four tombs and excavate these remains, royal consent is needed. So the queen or whomever sovereign has to sign off on it. They have to give royal consent. And the queen has not done so. The queen has not signed off on opening those tombs to test those remains. And it's likely that she never will. And it's very likely that the royals will never give royal consent to open those tombs because it's just general tradition that once a royal's buried, you don't open it up again. You don't get in there. You don't do it. You just leave it alone. This is a mystery that will remain unsolved. You know, it's it's hundreds and hundreds of years old, but media has run with this. There's been countless movies, documentaries. There's even a manga, a Victorian manga series called The Black Butler that's inspired by this. There's been uh, a 2005 drama about the princes. There's been a 2013 BBC miniseries and a 2017 Stars miniseries that was heavily influenced by this mystery of where did these princes go? You know, they, you know, they were just young kids. They didn't know what was going on. They didn't particularly, they were aware. You know, Edward, the Prince of Wales, had astute training. He knew what his job was going to be but he was too young to have any agency over what to do and what to say and so you know these kids were innocent you know they didn't ask to be placed in these positions no one gets asked to be in the position of sovereign but you know it was it all boils down to three power hungry adults and in some way shape or form the power hungry richard the third you know he has a reputation in royal history of just not being the best kind of being an awful guy and this is another example of that you know whether he was the one who actually ordered it or it didn't order it he was still aware of what was going on and because of the responsibility that he had my personal opinion is that is that we don't necessarily know who killed them or what happened to them but in some way shape or form richard iii is responsible because he had such a close tight-knit watch over them and to just continue to conjecture and to pose a question why would he have such tight control over the young boys if he didn't perceive them as a threat you know why would he be so concerned about their position where they were and who saw them if he didn't see them as a threat you know that's just my own personal thought but there you have it very quickly but it's this such a fascinating mystery about the two princes. What happened to them? Where did they go? We have these sets of bones of children's remains, either in a royal vault or in Westminster Abbey. But the establishment is saying, no, no, you can't do that. You know, you can't get in there, which begs the question, do they know more than what we're letting on? Or are they just going, no, you can't do that because we say so, end of story. You know, there's, there's a lot of questions still surrounding this mystery about the two princes and it's something that fascinates me a little bit i heard a podcast about it years ago and it's something that has still always fascinated me about it but what do you think about this mystery who do you think did it who do you think 
uh, was responsible and who do you think uh, was the person behind this disappearance? Did they disappear? Were they murdered? Did they starve to death? There's there's a lot of questions here, which is why I love history. All these, just the conjecturing and thinking, and it's just something that I really enjoy. But sound off on social media, sound off in the comments, wherever you're listening. What do you think? Who do you think did it based off, you know, the argument I put forth today? What do you think? Let me know. But that is, in brief, the mystery of the two princes of the tower, which brings our October to an end. Of course, we're going into November. The podcast isn't going anywhere. But spooky season here at the podcast is coming to an end. But let me know if you enjoy some of these more true crime conspiracy you know, not the brightest moment of royal history. There's quite a lot of them to go around, but that is the Princess of the Tower. We may never know the truth. My sources for today's podcast are Wikipedia, the My Favorite Murder podcast, Historic Royal Palaces online website, and historic-uk.com. If you made it this far, thank you for stopping by the podcast. I really appreciate it. You're a real trooper for making it this far. If you'd like to suggest topics for future episodes or let me know how I'm doing on the podcast, you can drop me a line over at the official email, which is at BritishRoyalFanPod at gmail.com. I check it regularly and I look forward and really would like your feedback. If you want to join the Twitter family or the Facebook family, we have an official Facebook page, the British Royal Fanatic Podcast, and we have an official Twitter page at Fanatic underscore Royal on Twitter. I'm much more active on Twitter than on Facebook, but I am trying to get back into the rhythm of Facebook. But we do have that page there. Join the page. Join the join the Twitter page. You can stay up to date on the podcast and any big events going on in the royal family. If you feel so inclined to donate, there is a one-time donation PayPal over on Twitter and a monthly donation setup over on the Anchor homepage. I am a one-man team here. I do everything myself, and any support would be much appreciated as I can make this podcast the very best it can be. I know times are tough. I know times are hard right now, but again, if you feel inclined to donate, it'll be much appreciated, and you'll get perks to make it worth your while. Head on over to Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, CastBox, Audible, Amazon Music, wherever you're listening to it. You can find this podcast on a lot of places. But rate, review, subscribe, and share. That helps make the family bigger, and it helps make the podcast the best it can be. Have a great rest of your day, everyone. Have a great Halloween. And as always, I'll see you in the next one.